Abacadabra. 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 Hey, welcome to another episode of RUFSM. I'm Rachel. And I'm April. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm awesome. Good, good. So it's that time of year. It's magic in the air. So what's this week's episode about? Well, because it's such a magical time, I wanted to look into a word I've always been fascinated with, and it's abracadabra. Ooh, abracadabra. Yeah, so I thought we'd start off with the definition. Let's hear it. Abracadabra, a word used in magical writings of uncertain origin. Mm, uh, Magic can be performed either by potions or by the use of magic words and phrases. Among the most powerful of these is the word uh, abacadabra. Okay, that's the definition, but what does it mean? And where does it come from? Relationships have been suggested with Abraxas, a Gnostic deity, and with various Aramaic or Hebrew terms. Avda Kedavara, literally, what was said has been done. Avra Kedavra, literally, what has said has come to pass. Okay, Rachel, you just wanted to hear Steve Miller again. Uh, I'm not saying I did want to, but I'm not <laughs> not saying that either. Oh, come on. That song's great. Yeah, I have a total nostalgia totally, soft spot for it. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of, I think it was the summer between 6th and 7th grade, and I had my first boyfriend. Oh, it reminds me of my fifth grade summer, and my sister and I had a routine that we would dance to on the deck. Uh-oh, you're going to have to show me that routine. I can barely remember my name, let alone a routine I did 40-odd years ago. I think your sister might remember it. <laughs> she may. I think we need to call her up and get her down here to demonstrate that. We'll All put right. that video on the website. Perfect. We always like to have a visual for you guys. <laughs> While these theories of the origin of abracadabra are pretty cool, there's little evidence to support the relationship between the Hebrew words and the word as we know it today. Abracadabra in the form we know it today first pops up in ancient Rome, roughly the third century. Inscribes cartae quod dicitur abracadabra. Saipius et that man speaking right there, that's Christopher Francese, intellectual badass, host and producer of the Latin Poetry Podcast. Here he translates an ancient doctor's prescription, which includes the first written record of the word abracadabra, with instructions on how to use it. Here is Quinctius Serenus Simonicus's cure for uh, hemitritios, which is a kind of recurring fever. And uh, this dates, again, to around the 3rd century, roughly. Uh, The malady the Greeks called hemitritios is more deadly. None of our ancestors could name this disease in our own language. On a piece of parchment, write the so-called abracadabra several times, repeating it on the line below. 
but take off the end so that gradually individual letters, which you will take away each time, are missing from the word. Continue until the last letter makes the apex of a cone. Remember to wind this with linen and hang it around the neck. Okay, so I want to make sure that's clear. What he's describing is called an abracadabra angle. To make one, you write the word abracadabra, and then right underneath it, you write the word abracadab r. So you take off the a, and then you keep writing the word and dropping off the last letter until you just get an a, and you center each time. So it ends up being an inverted triangle. With A as the bottom most point? Correct, and abracadabra as the top layer. That's amazing. (laughs) So abracadabra pops up in ancient Rome, and then we don't see it much after that. Not until it made a big old comeback in medieval England. Specifically, you'd create an abracadabra angle talisman. That just rolls off the tongue. (laughs) And hang it on your door to keep the plague away. As you can imagine, it wasn't all that effective. And there were some huge detractors, some people that really made fun of this superstitious belief. On the other hand, there was a cultist, magician, painter, novelist, and mountaineer, Aleister Crowley, who actually was a big fan of the word. Either way, it fell out of fashion and eventually came to be synonymous with fake magic. So now we know where the word abracadabra comes from and that it's not really used by magicians today. But, Rachel, I still think it'd be really cool if we could talk to a magician. Guess what, April? I have the perfect one to talk to. You know, and as you listeners know, I recently went to the Magic Castle in Los Angeles for my birthday, and I met an amazing magician. His name is Siegfried Tiber, and I went to talk to him about what it's like to be a magician in modern magic circles. My name is Siegfried Tiber. I am a magician. That's what I do professionally full time. And that's also what I deeply love doing. I guess I should say so people don't wonder where on air does this guy come from? What's up with the accent? (laughs) I was born and raised in Ecuador. Nowadays, I'm based in Los Angeles. Mainly what I do enjoy the most is close-up magic, performing magic illusions for small groups of people. I prefer close-up magic because of the physical proximity with the audience and the intimacy that that creates. It's very, very different watching a magician or any kind of performer or art form in a large stage where communication pretty much flows one way from the stage to the audience. In close-up magic, communication flows both ways. It's very, very interactive. I wouldn't even refer to people in the audience as an audience but as participants because in close-up magic most people or everybody i would say are active participants okay so let's be honest magician is a pretty specific and niche career and i wanted to know how did siegfried even begin his magical journey Ay, ay, ay. My journey as a magician. Well, I graduated from high school at 18. 
2015, a few months later, I enrolled at university, and a few months after I turned 19, I got interested in magic. Somebody lent me a book, a book on card tricks, a thick book, some 500 pages. I read it cover to cover. I found this one trick that I really liked. I practiced, 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 and then after a few weeks of relentlessly practicing, I showed it to my family and they freaked out and I freaked out that they're freaking out. So that's how I was initially hooked to magic. Fast forward five years into the future, I graduated from university, got a degree in mechanical engineering, and I told my parents that I wanted to do card tricks for a living. Uh, they didn't take it well at the beginning, but then they were okay with it and they have been very, very supportive. I did that uh, back home in Ecuador for about two years, and then I decided to move to Los Angeles to pursue that in a more, ay, 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 in a different way and take things from a different perspective, I guess. I mean, I wanted to know if there was any overlap between mechanical engineering and magic. There is a lot of overlap. As, as you're absolutely right, mechanical engineering is a very technical career. Magic, especially close-up magic, is very technical in the slide of hand slash technique aspect to it, meaning digital technique. However, where I find most overlap and where I think a background in engineering has really helped in magic is to learn how to think and process information in a very structured way. There is a, a gentleman, um, an American magician, his name is Darwin Ortiz. He expressed the idea that magic is an intellectual art form. It's an intellectual process that creates an emotional reaction. When we watch magic as audience members or participants, we go through a mental process process of analyzing every single step along the way. If we don't find an explanation of how certain outcome happened, which is the idea of magic, an effect without a cause, without an explanation, if we intellectually cannot discover what created that specific effect, we react from an emotional place. We know that magic is not real magic. It's an art form, like when we watch a movie or read a fine piece of literature, it might be fiction, but our reaction is merely emotional. So, going back to the beginning, I guess that thinking in a very structured way helps in magic for the goal of creating and evoking an emotional reaction from people depending on the specific magic trick, if we're talking then again carded tricks, we have to discard many possible theories that might come to mind. First, the cards are not all different. It's not a deck with 52 queens of hearts. That <laughs> it would be easy to pull off tricks that way. We have to establish that these are ordinary cards, that they have no marks on the backs, and etc., etc. Ideally, all this has to be done in a subtle and elegant way, so not to hammer it over people's head, but, but so that we realize that, okay, apparently there is no explanation. Siegfried definitely creates a sense of awe with the audience participants. It's intimate and exciting. 
And one of the things that he does in his close-up magic is roll up his sleeves, literally showing people that there's nothing up his sleeves. This all goes then again to the fact that magic is an intellectual process that results in an emotional reaction. Magic happens by process of elimination. Then again, when we are watching a performer, a magician, even if we are hardcore magic lovers and we really truly want to experience astonishment and wonder and mystery, all of us, one way or another, are looking for an explanation in the back of our minds because we're human beings, that's what we are wired to do to look for explanations. One easy explanation is the cards went up the sleeves. If we eliminate the sleeves, we eliminate that possibility. But how much do the sleeves or lack thereof play into magic? As it turns out, Siegfried tells me that he's run a little experiment. So he has this 15-20 minute magic set that he has literally done with sleeves rolled up and sleeves rolled down step-by-step, patter-by-patter, really hitting all the marks. And when he has those sleeves rolled up, people are excited. The participants engage, they're blown away. And when the sleeves are rolled down, there is a hesitancy to that excitement. He can feel the difference. It just doesn't wow them quite as much. Why is that? Even if it's unconsciously, we are programmed to think that, oh, the cards must be going up and down the sleeve. There's some truth to that. Nowadays, that's rarely used by magicians, but there's truth to that, and there's uh, historical reasons for that. People, especially gamblers cheating at the card table, would use devices that would allow them to switch cards up and down their sleeves. So that's where it comes from. Then again, rarely used by magic, but if sleeves are down, people might think, oh, it's that easy. It's not interesting. Okay, so here's the thing. I first saw Siegfried perform magic on TV. I saw him on Penn and Teller's Fool Us. Spoiler, he fooled Penn and Teller. I got a little fangirl and wanted to know how that felt. It was an amazing experience. Thanks for asking, I'm excited to answer to this. Penn and Teller, many of our listeners, I imagine, might be familiar with them, American magicians. They have been working together, I think, for about 50 years, and they've been performing almost nightly in Vegas at the Rio Hotel. I think this is their 15th year, something along those lines. Personally, they are two of my heroes, and they have made extraordinary contributions to the art of magic, mainly by leading by example. You go and see their show, and it's not cheesy, cliche magic. It's a very intellectual art for me. It's absolutely beautiful. They have a TV show called Full Ass, the premise of which is that they invite magicians from all around the world to perform in an attempt to fool them, meaning do a trick that they cannot explain. Disclaimer, I personally think that fooling and being fooled is such an ugly concept. I think there is a good reason why the show is called Fool Us, but that's another conversation for another day. Fooling people, so to speak, quote-unquote, or deception, if you will, is an element of magic, but I think it's only a means to an end. I think that magic is not about fooling people, but, but it's about 
co-creating an experience that all of us can enjoy and celebrate together. So, Penn & Taylor, I did a trick that did indeed fool them, meaning that they were not able to explain. It was one of the most satisfying moments of my career and of my life. As I mentioned, they are and have been for at least the past five years of my life, two of my heroes. Of course, each person who goes to the show might have a different goal in mind. I deeply believe that most people's goal is not to fool Penn and Teller because first of all, they are masters mm -hmm. of the craft and art form. And second, they are most magicians, many magicians here. You just want to do something interesting and appealing for them. For my appearance with them, I pulled them to the stage. My only hope was to tell them, Penn Teller, come sit here, watch close and do a card trick for them. <laughs> uh, but fooling them was a really, really nice bonus, but I honestly didn't expect that I would fool them. I know we have some listeners in Los Angeles, and you may be familiar with the Magic Castle, but I'm not kidding you when I say this place is so cool. So I wanted Siegfried to tell us more about it, you know, for those of you who haven't been. Let's begin at the beginning. Uh, the Magic Castle, it's a private club, like a social club, like a golf club or whatnot, but with the focus of magic. If you've been living in Los Angeles for a few years, chances are you might have heard about the Magic Castle. Maybe not been there, but heard about it because it's a quite mysterious thing. It operates mainly during nighttime. There's a strict dress code and there is no photography allowed. And of course, all this has created a little bit of an air of mystery. However, even if you are not in Los Angeles, if you are a magician anywhere in the world, chances are you might have heard about the Magic Castle. For us magicians, the Magic Castle is a big deal. As I mentioned, I moved to Los Angeles about five years ago from Ecuador to be near the Magic Castle. It's something sorta kinda similar to what happens with Hollywood and the film industry. Hollywood pulls writers, actors, directors from all around the world in a smaller scale that happens with the Magic Castle. The Magic Castle is a big mansion. We have six formal rooms or theaters and many spaces where there are impromptu ongoing performances. So you can see from five to ten different magicians, some of the best in the world on any given night at the Magic Castle. In order to become a magician member, you have to go through an audition process. They would ask you to prepare a 10 to 15 minute audition and it's super intimidating because you're pulled into a room with a few of the top magicians in the planet and they are watching closely. <laughs> but uh, then again, once you pass the audition, you can become a member. On the other hand, there is, if you want to be part of the official schedule at the Magic Castle, you have to go through an additional 
auditioning process. You have to send a tape of your act. They would usually ask you for a 20-ish minute performance on tape that you'd plan to perform. And in that regard, well, I'm a member, a magician member, and also a regular performer, meaning that they would hire me a couple of times throughout the year to perform there. Performing at the Magic Castle, it's a big, big, big honor. In my mind, is an actor who wants to be a stage actor, you want to be on Broadway. And that's something, if you're an actor and you were on a Broadway show, that's something you'll brag about for the rest of your life and that you'll have on your resume for the rest of your life. Something similar happens with the Magic Castle. Saying that I've performed at the Magic Castle is personally a huge privilege. It's very satisfying. If you're like me, you wonder if tricks ever go wrong and what happens when they do. People often ask me if magic tricks ever go wrong, and of course they do. A fundamental principle of magic is that more often than not people don't know what is going to happen before it happens. So sometimes if you feel that something is going off track and you realize early on, you might be able to save it. On the other hand, at some point you hit the point of no return. A few years ago when I was still uh, living in Ecuador, I was working on this trick which consisted of me walking on the stage with a cup of coffee, steaming coffee. I would hold it in one hand, covering it with the other hand. I would turn the thing upside down and then remove my hand to reveal that the liquid had disappeared. And this is something I would do like up close, like two feet away from people and it was a very interesting illusion. At some point I had performed it successfully a couple times and at some point I realized okay wouldn't it be more dramatic if instead of simply covering it with my hand and making it disappear what if I were to place the cap over someone's head, turn it upside down and make the coffee disappear. It would be the same trick but it would be much much more dramatic. At the time, I was doing already doing magic full-time in Ecuador, and I would, every now and then, I'd be hired to do corporate parties and whatnot. So I was hired by this pharmaceutical company, super high profile. They had an end-of-the-year party for their top executives and blah, blah, blah. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to try my new idea, right? What could go wrong? I arrived to the venue, it was a fancy room on the rooftop of a fancy building, maybe some 20-ish people, and as long as I am walking with a cup of coffee, this would, was an ideal opening trick to set the mood. So I walk into the stage, cup of coffee in hand, I introduce myself, I see this lovely woman with a beautiful white dress on the audience, I ask her to join me on the stage, she takes a seat, and I place the cup of coffee over her head, cover it with my hand, turn it over, and the whole cup of coffee goes on. Her beautiful white dress, she was laughing and giggling the whole time. Okay, this happens, this happens, I know. Next day, I sent her flowers, then again, I apologize, I sent her a card, and still to this day, we're in touch. She still became my friend. I find super exciting the, the idea that we're talking about magic. However, magic is an art form that has to be experienced live. Magic, I think, is mainly a misunderstood 
art form, many people still seem to think that magic lives in the past century where it's only about cutting women in half or pulling bunny rabbits out of hats. If done well, those can be glorious, beautiful illusions, but there is much, much more to magic than that. Close-up magic is a relatively new branch of magic, which is very dynamic and which I believe suits well the 21st century. Where am I going with all of this? Hopefully this conversation has sparked people's curiosity. And if you haven't seen close-up magic performed live, go look for it, watch it wherever you live. Chances are there might be a magician around or drive a few hours to the nearest large town and try to watch magic. It's a very, very interesting art form. And the twist it has taken on the 21st century is quite interesting. Go watch Magic Live. I am definitely gonna go see some live magic as soon as possible. Uh, I will go with you. I'm so into close-up magic now, I can't even handle it. And I love the Magic Castle, and Siegfried is amazing. He's, what a great interview. He's utterly charming. And he basically is dressed like the most dapper man you could think. So even when he's doing it in a three-piece suit, doing his close-up magic, he's got his sleeves rolled up. <laughs> That's awesome. I yeah. can't wait to see him. He's wonderful. So April, do you have a favorite magic word? Uh, well, I'm always partial to uh, a la peanut butter sandwiches. <laughs> it's made up. That's not... It always worked on Sesame Street. Aren't they all made up? Wait a minute. What do you mean? They are kind of all made up. Oh, yeah. I forgot to tell you that Siegfried told me he found out where Hocus Pocus came from. Oh, where? He said that there was a 19th century magician whose stage name was Hocus Pocus. And whenever he pulled off a trick, he'd say, Hocus Pocus. And he was so popular that other magicians started saying Hocus Pocus in their own acts as homage to him. That's pretty great. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was really fun. It was really fun. Of course, thank you, Siegfried, for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. And a special thanks to Montano Socolo for giving us the definition and origins of abracadabra and to Chris Francese for giving us the Latin rundown on the first written documentation of abracadabra. And thanks to all of you for listening. Hope you have a magical holiday season and enjoyed this episode. And we will see you maybe next week. In the meantime, I'm Rachel. And I'm April. Bye. Bye.